please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. We're going to continue our look into the book of 1 Peter here this morning. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. There are some experiences that are so massively significant that once experienced, they leave you forever altered. They, they change the way you look at things. It, it may even feel like they, they sort of rearrange your soul. They give you a new perspective on what's really important. And the result is a person who is transformed both internally and externally. And I think often when we think about experiences like this, we, we probably tend to think of negative situations, negative experiences. Tragedy is often transforming, as is trauma. Comic books, I think, illustrate this concept well. (laughs) Nearly every major superhero in the comic book industry today has his or her origin in tragedy. Bruce Wayne, for example, at a very young age, sees his parents murdered. And that experience drives him to become Batman. to to become a force for justice in the corrupt city in which he's born and raised. Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man not immediately after receiving his strange powers, but after his failure to do something decent actually directly leads to the death of his beloved Uncle Ben. Tony Stark becomes Iron Man after he is captured and nearly killed by terrorists, and his eyes are opened to a world that is bent on destroying itself. And it's a world that he actually helped to make that way. The list goes on and on. And I think this happens in the real world as well. Nelson Mandela, the South African revolutionary president and Nobel Peace Prize winner who just celebrated his birthday this past week, spent 27 years in prison for protesting, sometimes violently, against the policies of apartheid in South Africa. The experience further solidified his desire to end this system of racial inequality, but it also created in him, it galvanized within him, a desire to bring about racial reconciliation in South Africa. And that became his legacy after he was released. He became the crucial figure in South African politics responsible for ending the system of racial and economic injustice and instituting an administration aimed at reconciliation rather than revenge. But life-altering experiences are not limited to the sphere of tragedy or trauma. Sometimes the experiences are, on the surface, completely mundane, and yet they, they bring something of importance into clarity, into really sharp focus. Sometimes an experience of profound joy is the catalyst. In fact, it's into this last category, an instance of profound joy, that I would say the most significant event that can happen to a human being would fall. As we continue our brief look into the book of 1 Peter, we come this morning to the section of chapter 1 where Peter examines this experience and the subsequent changes that it brings about. I'm going to read 1 Peter 13 to 25. Follow along with me in your Bibles. 
Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not, be, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The most massively significant experience an individual can have is that of being transformed from spiritual death to spiritual life through the new birth that is the work of God in the gospel. It produces life-altering changes based on what it reveals to be truly important. It's, it's precisely this experience that opens and closes this section of Peter's letter. It's the experience that he worships God for in verse 3. And it's the foundational work in which all of the imperatives that Peter gives in verses 13 to 25 are rooted. This morning, I want to spend our time together in God's word looking at the new birth and the impact that it has on our lives. First of all, what is the new birth? In this passage this morning, Peter explains the new, verse in verse, the new birth in verses 22 to 25. And he describes it in relation to our natural birth. The natural physical birth of humans serves as a metaphor for the new birth, which is supernatural and spiritual. And it's a metaphor that explains sort of how that new birth takes place. In this comparison, the nature of the life generated by the birth is directly tied to the nature of the seed which brought about the birth. We are born naturally through the seed, the sperm of our father. The new birth is the process by which God produces children through his imperishable seed, which Peter explains is the living and enduring word of God. And the main comparison that Peter draws is between the perishable nature of the natural seed of man and the imperishable nature of God's seed. The seed of our natural father is is perishable. It produces life that is only temporary, life that will ultimately end in death. The natural seed of man produces life that is destined to die because it is spiritually dead. It's corrupted by sin and it's naturally sinful. It produces children 
who cannot remain in their natural state and enjoy fellowship with a holy God. The imperishable seed of God that that Peter describes as the living and enduring word of God is the gospel. It's the message that God has rescued his people. Peter paraphrases actually Isaiah 40 verses 6 to 8 to illustrate both the perishable nature of humanity and the enduring nature of God's word. In Isaiah 40, what's actually happened, the background of that passage is that the people of Israel have gone into exile. And God tells Isaiah, who's a prophet to the people, he says, comfort my people. And Isaiah says to God, what should I say to them? What can I say to them to comfort them? And what Peter paraphrases here is what God commands Isaiah to tell his people. The people were wondering if if God had forsaken them. And his response was that when he gave his word, he kept it forever. It didn't have conditions. It could not be thwarted. Nothing could stand in its way. He would bring it about. And what God had promised to do was rescue his people. And that scenario, I think, would resonate with Peter's audience when they heard that. There are people whom Peter addresses as strangers in the world. Are people suffering for their faith and probably wondering to some extent if God had forsaken them. And Peter comforts them with the gospel. God's promise to rescue his people. God rescues his people by giving them a new nature. Through the gospel, God has provided the means to deal with sin in a way that rescues his people from sin rather than destroying them for the sin that is within us and that we continually perpetuate on a daily basis. In his mercy, God himself bore the penalty for sin in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. After he had poured out all of his just anger and retribution for sin on the sacrifice of his son, God raised him from the dead in a literal physical resurrection that serves as a, uh, a model for the future hope of anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. A sinful human being is born again when they recognize the sin within them that has separated them from God And by faith, they take hold of and accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on their behalf. From that moment on, that person has been made new through the gospel, through the living and enduring word of God. Peter closes this passage in verse 25 by saying to his audience, this is the word that was preached to you. I want to say to you this morning. This is the word that has been preached to you. This is a massively significant event. This is an event from which you should never recover. Through the imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of of God, you have been born again. There is no other experience that we can compare to that. You are a new creation. You are now a child of God. He has, in a sense, begotten you. He has brought about your birth through the gospel. 
And what Peter says in this passage this morning is that this experience should leave you forever altered. There are four ways that Peter points out in this passage the new birth should impact how we live. Four changes that are brought about in the new birth. To begin with, in verse 13, the new birth should bring about a new approach to life. A new approach to life. Our hope is not here. Peter tells us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Hope is a revealing emotion. It demonstrates what we currently value most highly. Often hope varies with our circumstances. For example, somebody who's really busy and tired may hope in a vacation. A four-year-old hopes for birthday presents. A Chicago Cubs fan hopes in vain for a World Series title. An oppressed person hopes for freedom. A wronged person hopes for justice. And our hope is what fuels how we live. From our hope and the vision that it gives us, we draw purpose and direction. We draw encouragement from it when things get hard. We can see that demonstrated clearly in the the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, especially in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s leadership. His I Have a Dream speech laid out a vision for the hope of the people that, that galvanized them and encouraged them. And as a result, they persisted in their cause despite severe persecution and incredible hardships until the policies of racial segregation were removed from law. Peter's exhortation to believers here is both a corrective measure and a clarifying instruction. It's it's not necessarily wrong to hope in a vacation, to look forward to a vacation. But vacations end. And then it's back to the grind. Vacations are nice, but they will not fully satisfy. Presents and World Series titles are also nice, but their glory fades. The Chicago Cubs won the World Series in 1903. But that fact is now more of a source of frustration than it is for, of, of comfort for Cubs fans. Because the glory has faded, but the hunger is still there. More significant hope, hope for things like freedom or justice, are not trivial hopes, and and Peter's not trivializing them by what he says here. What Peter is doing is refocusing them. What Peter points us to is the single event that will amount to the consummation and fulfillment of all of our hopes, the appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus will return and he will establish a kingdom that that offers perfect justice, perfect freedom, perfect peace, and ultimate satisfaction. Peter's instruction here should not be seen as an excuse to avoid pursuing things like justice here and now, but it does free us from seeking those things as an end in themselves. We should seek justice because it is good And it's right and it's consistent with the heart of God. Not because the establishment of justice will will bring us some sort of fulfillment. Because we will not find it there. Your soul was not created to be satisfied 
by the justice that you can bring about with your own two hands. Your soul was created to enjoy fellowship with God face to face and to give him glory for the perfect justice that he can bring about. Now, the the participles with which Peter begins this verse, prepare your minds for action and be self-controlled. They function by telling us how we are to set our hope fully on the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Hope is a volitional activity. It has its source in the mind and in the heart. So Peter wisely counsels us to direct our hope through disciplined thinking. Peter literally tells his audience in in the Greek here, gird up the loins of your mind. That's the metaphor that he uses. It's an extended metaphor. And we may not understand that as readily as uh, Peter's first century audience did. I mean, for one thing, my mind is not typically where I think of my loins as being located. The NIV translates this for us by removing the figure of speech. Prepare your minds for action is is a good explanation of the meaning of that metaphor. Put your thinking cap on might be one that we would use there. Strap on your mind's big boy pants. Get ready to think hard is what Peter is saying. Deliberately setting your hope on something takes thinking in a new way. Deliberate, specific, intentional and focused thinking. Peter also tells us that we can bring this about by being what the NIV translates as self-controlled. What Peter literally said there was be sober-minded. A person who is drunk loses focus and clarity. They become dull in their perception of reality and their, their reflexes slow down. Thomas Schreiner is one of the... One of the um, I was reading one of his commentaries on First Peter and he had a really good quote about this that I want to read to you this morning. I think he gets to the heart of this metaphor. Peter was not merely saying that believers should refrain from drunkenness. There is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God that is anesthetized by the attractions of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. A sober-minded person is one who is focused on what really matters. They know what's important, and they're not easily distracted from it. What Peter is telling us to do is to basically fixate on the grace that will be given to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. But how exactly does, does thinking, how does engaging your mind bring about the resetting of our hope? D.A. Carson made a helpful observation about this in one of his sermons on this passage. He makes the point that we do not cultivate hope by thinking about cultivating hope. We cultivate hope by thinking about the object of our hope. Uh, Let me illustrate for you how this works. I do not increase my hope in a vacation by thinking about my hope in a vacation. Okay, the way that I increase my hope in a vacation is not by saying to myself, I hope in my vacation. I hope in my vacation. I hope in my vacation. Like, like some kind of mantra. That's, that's not how I increase my hope in my vacation. The way I do it is by thinking about my vacation. I can't wait 
to lay in that hammock in the shade with a big old glass of sweet tea and do crossword puzzles for three hours. I can't wait to stand by a barbecue grill and smell the hamburgers and the hot dogs. I can't wait to swim and sit in the sun. And and now we all want to go on a vacation. That is how we cultivate hope. Likewise, we increase our hope in Jesus by thinking about Jesus. His grace and his mercy to us. His meekness. His goodness, his love, his power, his passion, his majesty and his glory. Deliberately, consistently thinking on these things will help you to set your hope on the grace that will be given to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Secondly, in verse 14, the new birth gives Christians a new approach to personal conduct. We no longer live for ourselves. Peter tells Christians, be holy in all you do. The basis Peter gives for this command is his quotation from Leviticus, where God tells his people, be holy, for I am holy. And holiness is a broad term. So I think we need to, I think it's important to define what exactly Peter means when he tells us to be holy. Holiness, in one sense, refers to the very nature of God. It, it, It deals with the essence of I guess what I would call his godness. God is described as holy, and all of who he is, all of what he is like, is, is wrapped up in that concept. In Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah 6, the seraphim around the throne are covering themselves in the presence of God, and they're saying over and over and over again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And this is not an element that we ourselves can can have. It's not one that we can carry out. And that's not the essence of Peter's command. But I would say that this is the basis for it. Because God is holy, there is a holiness that should characterize his people. Peter's quotation from the book of Leviticus actually gives us a clue for what he means by holiness. In the book of Leviticus... Expectations were laid out for how the people of God should conduct themselves in light of the holiness of God. As the people of God, the nation of Israel was sanctified. They were set apart for the specific purposes of God. And practically speaking, this worked itself out in a visible ethic, one that included a separation from sin and a dedication to moral purity and righteousness. And it's this aspect of holiness that provides the essence of Peter's command. Christians are set apart. We are sanctified for the purposes of God. And as such, our conduct should be characterized by a separation from sin and a dedication to righteousness and moral purity. And Peter illustrates how this works by demonstrating how his audience once lived and how they should now live in light of their new relationship with God. Prior to our new birth through the gospel, we lived with one purpose in mind, to gratify our evil desires. Prior to the new birth, we are by nature self-centered. We live to one end, to make ourselves happy. It's therefore the driving ambition of every single human being 
to pursue and engage in whatever activity they will think will make them happiest. And this invariably results in idolatry. Because while the end for which we were created, it will ultimately result in our uh, joy and satisfaction. It can only be found in the one reality to which we are born spiritually ignorant. The glory of God. So we seek happiness in pleasure, in power, in wealth, in entertainment, in created things rather than in the creator. The new birth brings with it a recognition of the reality in which our happiness was meant to be found. The Shorter Westminster Catechism says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think that's correct. Peter describes our new relationship and orientation toward God as that of obedient children. An obedient child is one who sets aside their own self-centered desires in favor of the greater act of honoring their father. An obedient child recognizes that greater satisfaction is to be found in the very act of obedience than it would be in pursuing their own desires. At the heart of this obedience is a recognition brought about by the new birth. That the holiness of God makes the act of glorifying him in our lives the greatest, most significant and meaningful act that a human being can undertake. Because of the the surpassing worth of its object, glorifying God through obedience to his will has more meaning than the pursuit of self-indulgence. Third, in verses 17 to 21, Peter tells us that the new birth brings about a new approach to God. A new approach to God. He is our father and judge. The central command that Peter gives in these verses is that we should live our lives here as strangers here in reverent fear. And one of the bases that Peter gives for this message uh, is uh, the message of redemption in the gospel. One of the ways that redemption is portrayed is in the liberation of someone from something by the, the paying of a price. In the new birth through the gospel, Peter explains that we have been redeemed, liberated at a price, from the empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers. And there's a contrast between uh, the inheritance that we inherit from our forefathers, the way that's described in this passage, to the way our inheritance from God is described in verse 4. One is empty. It's, It's in vain. It's meaningless. The other can never perish, spoil, or fade. There's a deliberate comparison here that we should draw between these two inheritances. Which one offers more? Which one is the greater reward? There's no question. The inheritance from God is far superior. And the incredible thing to meditate on here is who pays the price and who gets the reward? You and I, in this picture of the gospel, we're the ones that get the goods. We get the reward. We get the blessing of the inheritance. But first, we must be transferred from one family line to another. We must, we must be moved from the line of our forefathers to the line that is set to inherit this inheritance from God. And this is an act that cannot be carried out by money. And I think it's interesting that Peter brings up here again gold and silver. 
that earthly treasure to which we ascribe ultimate value. What Peter says here is the cost is much higher. And in the gospel, God himself pays the price. In the most precious of all treasures, the perfect, absolutely incorruptible person of his son. The price paid to redeem us from our empty way of life to make us children of God is the life of Jesus. And with that in mind, with the price that was paid, with the inheritance that is in store for us, with the relationship that we now have with God, who through the gospel is our Father, Peter calls us to live our lives as strangers here in reverent fear. We're strangers because we no longer live in the family of sin. Our inheritance no longer lies here in this world. As a result, our lives should not be lived as though this world has something to offer us that God himself cannot. Peter calls us to live in reverent fear of God. And the NIV actually adds the word reverent to this command. Peter only tells us to live in fear. I think the NIV is communicating something that's inherent in what Peter says here. But in the process, reading it like that, I I think we can miss that we are still being called to fear. God is our Father. This, This is true. And His disposition toward us is characterized by tenderness and compassion and love that is absolute. However, none of those aspects are divorced from His fatherly role to judge our lives and discipline us accordingly. And here again, our spiritual blindness hinders us. Our disposition toward God is often far too casual for who he really is because we do not see him for who he really is. I want to go back to the prophet Isaiah for a moment and when it was his, his vision of God in Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets a glimpse of his holiness and his response is equivalent to a scream of complete and utter terror and to call down a curse upon himself. He says, woe to me, I am undone. He saw the Holy One and his, his presence, in the presence of God, his life was brought into stark relief. His sin was so plain that he recognized it as his undoing. And so clear is the nature of his life in the presence of the holy God that he calls for judgment upon himself. We call on God as our father. And and he is our father through the gospel. It is in the gospel that we begin to see God for who he is and what he is like. God is absolutely holy, and we are absolutely not. He is our Father at tremendous cost to Himself and tremendous gain for us. It's therefore good and proper for us to live our lives in light of His evaluation and judgment. He's the one that we should seek to honor with our lives. He is the one whom we should reverence. It is his opinion and his alone that should ultimately determine how we live. In light of who he is and what he has done, he is the one in whom our faith and hope should be placed, as Peter says in verse 21. 
And finally, in verse 22, the new birth gives us a new approach to one another. A new approach to one another. We love as God loves. In verse 22, Peter lays out one of the principal aims of our conversion through belief in the gospel. A sincere love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. When he speaks of us as having purified ourselves by obedience to the truth, Peter has in mind our conversion, the new birth. In the moment of conversion, when we respond to the gospel in obedience, that is, with faith and belief, our conversion occurs, as Peter says, so that we have brotherly love. Peter describes this love with three main descriptors. It's sincere, it is deep, and it is from the heart. In the gospel, I find the means to love you sincerely, deeply, and from the heart because I see displayed in the gospel the sincere, deep, and from the heart love of God for me. The love displayed in the gospel is the love that we are called to display to one another. It's sincere because it's offered without pretense. I I do not have to make myself worthy for that love before it is given. In the gospel, I see mercy and forgiveness. I see the exalted one stooping to serve the wretched one. It's deep love because it's willing to, to labor and to endure hardship. It's not a love that's contingent upon the cause. In the gospel, I see suffering willingly endured by the innocent and the unblemished for the sake of my sin. And it's from the heart because it is genuine. It's not superficial or surface love. This is not mere affirmation or tolerance. In the gospel, I do not find an affirmation that I am fine just the way that I am. In the gospel, I see that I can be better that what is broken in me can be made new. I see a love that does not settle for coexistence, but that actively seeks out fellowship and intimacy, even when the road to get there is paved in unimaginable pain. I see a love that is poured out, not because the object of the love is beautiful, but because the heart that gives the love is so full of love that it simply overflows. This is an open-armed, grief-bearing, sin-unmasking, self-giving, price-paying, hope-offering love. It breaks down the barriers that we've constructed along racial, economic, gender, generational, political lines. It offers compassion and forgiveness without the expectation of compensation. It is the antithesis of selfishness. It is radical, unnatural, and otherworldly. It's the kind of love that is life-altering. It's the kind of love that can and will save the world. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word 
that was preached to you. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to call you that. We give you worship and praise this morning for who you are and what you have done. Father, you are wise, you are gracious, and you are powerful. In your mercy, you have given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Father, out of the grace with which you have saved us, with which you have given us new birth, would you help us now to live new lives? Father, help us to set our hope on the grace that will be given to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Help us to be holy because you are holy. Help us to live our lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Father, help us to love one another as you have loved us. Would you be glorified in our hearts and in our lives? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.